Chapter Twenty Nine of the Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine. Bliss awoke shivering on the following morning after a night of fatigued and spasmodic slumber, and having performed his ablutions with the maximum of discomfort, sat down to await the arrival of his frugal breakfast. It was a fortnight since he had earned more than an odd shilling or two, and the fifty-one days which still remained before the anniversary of his visit to the physician seemed like an unbridgeable chasm of time. His limbs ached, his head felt hot, the thought of the forthcoming weak tea and thick bread and butter was more than usually distasteful. Amongst his dreary surroundings he sat for a moment or two and dreamed of his empty flat in Arlton Court. The soft, luxurious warmth of it, the thick carpets, the diligent care of a trained manservant. He even fancied that he could smell his coffee. He thought of the crisp hot rolls, the yellow butter, and the dish of marmalade. Fifty-one days more. It was for Francis as well as himself that he suffered now. He had not ventured to go near her, and his task of writing those cheerful little notes had become day by day more difficult. He set his teeth and clenched his fists. Every impulse in his body seemed drawing him towards the door, down the bare stairway, into the street, to throw himself into a taxicab, to go and call for Francis, and take her back with him into the life from which his own whim had exiled him, to confess himself beaten, for her sake, as well as his own. Then he heard the sound of his own name, and unconsciously he listened. It was his neighbour in the next room, the wife of a foreman printer, talking to his landlady. "'If you can't let me have the other room, Mrs. Heath, you must take a week's notice. So there.' "'What with baby and the other children, I haven't a yard to turn around in, "'and Jim said to me only this morning he was willing to pay for it, "'and if we couldn't get what we wanted here, we must move. "'That young fellow Bliss, or whatever his name is, "'can get a room somewhere else all right. "'You better tell him how things are.' "'He heard his landlady's reply. "'Her quiet, tired voice came to him with a new significance.' "'I'm sorry, Mrs. Mappin,' she said, "'if you'd let it be just for a week or so. "'The young fellow's been out of work, "'and he's owing me a bit. "'I don't like to turn him out onto the streets. "'He's been brought up different, anyone can see that. "'And my husband used to say that the young man "'who has once had to sleep out without a roof over his head was never quite the same afterwards. "'I don't care what your husband used to say, my good woman,' was the shrill reply. "'If I can't have that room, we leave on Saturday.' Mrs. Heath's reply was inaudible. Bliss rose to his feet. Immediately afterwards she entered with the breakfast tray. "'Good morning, Mrs. Heath,' he said tentatively. "'Good morning,' she replied, with her usual attempt at cheerfulness. "'Your breakfast, sir?' She turned towards the door a little wearily. 
In her face the signs of her lifelong struggle were more than usually visible. "'Anything to say to me, Mrs. Heath?' Bliss asked. She shook her head. "'Maybe you heard,' she replied. "'No, I've nothing to say. They're good tenants, aren't they? The best I've got.' "'I'll pay you what I owe you this morning,' Bliss promised. "'And you better let them have my room. I can easily find shelter somewhere else.' "'I'm not asking you to leave,' she said quietly. "'You stay where you are.' "'That's all right, Mrs. Heath,' Bliss replied cheerfully. "'I've something in my mind for this morning.' "'I'll be sorry to lose you, Mr. Bliss,' she went on. "'But—' Her voice trembled for a moment. He nodded. "'I understand,' he interrupted. "'Very likely you'll be able to take me back again sometime.' He stood quite still for a minute after she had left the room. Then he sat down and ate as much as he could of his breakfast. Afterwards he dragged out his little bag, packed it with his spare suit and a few other toilet articles he possessed, and walked downstairs with it in his hand. He passed Mrs. Heath on the landing. She stood on one side to let him pass. "'You're not afraid I'm going to bilk you, then, Mrs. Heath?' he asked with a smile. "'Not in the least, sir,' she replied. "'How much do I owe you exactly?' Twenty-eight and sixpence,' she told him. "'And I don't care if I never see a penny of it. I don't want you to go neither, Mr. Bliss. But if I lose the mappings—' I'll never be able to pay my rent. They're hard times, sir, she wound up with a little sob. Bliss patted her hand and walked out without speech. He made his way to the nearest pawnbroker's and sold everything he possessed, except the clothes he stood up in, for thirty shillings. Then he returned to his lodgings. Eighteen pence change, please, Mrs. Heath, he said, handing her the money. And look here— don't you worry if times are a little hard. I've a sort of idea that the new year may bring you luck. She smiled wanly as she counted out the eighteen pence. I've given up expecting that, sir, she replied drearily. The best I have to hope for is that I shall be able to hang on for a few years longer, until I can get the children started in something or other. And then I think— I shall be just too tired to bother much more about myself or anyone. I'm sorry you're going, Mr. Bliss. I can't tell you how sorry. May come back again, Bliss promised, if you've room for me. Very likely I'll be able to afford one of your downstair rooms some day. What have you done with your things? she asked, still fingering the money doubtfully. Left them in the cloakroom he lied quickly. I'm after a job this morning, and hadn't time to look for a room before I go. Goodbye. He shook hands with her, went out, and walked down the street smiling. He recognized within himself traces of a new disposition. He no longer found his thoughts fixed upon the selfish joys of his coming reliefs. One of the greatest pleasures he could see before him was the emancipation of Mrs. Heath from her financial troubles. He walked down the street with that thought in his head, and he quite forgot that his feet were weary and his head ached. 
Then he bethought himself of his destination. He found himself face to face with the bald truth. He had one and sixpence in his pocket, a few coppers, and no place to sleep in. He made his way to Covent Garden, but his luck was out. In every odd job that was going, he was forestalled. Then he tried the Labour Bureau, and spent an hour and a half in a fruitless walk to Bermondsey and back. When night came, although he had eaten insufficiently, he had less than a shilling left, and he was dog-tired. He clenched his teeth and presented himself at a public lodging-house, paid his sixpence, took a ticket, and threw himself down upon one of the beds in its long bare room, a mere glance at which made him shudder, threw himself down, hoping to sleep. For an hour or two he succeeded, then he woke up and looked about him. The atmosphere of the place was unbearable. With trembling fingers he dressed and hurried out. The janitor looked at him curiously. "'Off already?' he asked. Bliss nodded silently and passed out. The first breath of the night air seemed to him the sweetest thing he had ever tasted. Then the languor of insufficient sleep crept over his jaded senses. He made his way unconsciously down towards the embankment, and seated himself on the first vacant seat. He turned his coat-collar up, and clasped his knees with his hands, turning round with his back to the wind. He slept for a few minutes, and then woke up, numbed with the cold. A young fellow about his own age was seated at the other end of the bench. He was adequately dressed, and had an air of prosperity, which somehow or other Bliss found himself resenting. "'Cold night for sleeping out,' the newcomer remarked pleasantly. "'Beastly,' Bliss agreed. The young man drew nearer to him. Uh, "'Don't be afraid,' he said. "'I'm not going to offer you charity. I suppose you're out of work. What is your trade?' Bliss hesitated for a moment. "'Chauffeur,' he replied. "'Why are you out of a place?' the man asked. "'Have you a character? Have you been in trouble?' "'I have never been in trouble,' Bliss told him, "'if by that you mean in prison. I had to take work unexpectedly, that's all. I got a job at the Sun Motor Company, but they went into liquidation. Since then I have only picked up odd jobs.' "'You're the kind of man I've been looking for,' the other declared confidently. "'You've had a little experience of the difficulty of getting work over here.' What about a fresh start in another country, eh? Another country? Look here. I can see, of course, that you're an educated man. You've come down in the world. I don't care how. That isn't our job. My name's Miles. I belong to a society. The Canadian Employment Bureau, we call it. Don't look upon it as a charitable affair, please. But there it is. We've got funds, and we're on the lookout all the time for deserving cases. We give them a small outfit, send them over to Canada, passage paid. Our agent meets them there, keeps a register of the vacant places, and finds them jobs. Now, what do you say to it? I say, Bliss replied, that I should like to know more about the society. The young man handed him a pamphlet. Bliss thrust it into his pocket. Uh, look here, he said, sitting up. Uh, this is no good for me, but it sounds like a thundering good thing all the same. I've got to stay in England. 
and the luck will change with me pretty soon, I know that. But I will remember this. I'll drop in and see you sometime, if I may. I suppose I might find the address of the office here. The other assented. You're a queer chap, he observed curiously. Why are you so certain that the luck is going to turn? I'm quite sure of it. You're not masquerading, are you? Journalism or anything of that sort? Bliss shook his head. I'm hard up against it all right, he admitted, but only for a time. I could anticipate the end of my troubles, but I won't. There. Now, I see it's getting light. I'm off for a walk. The young man coughed. Uh, nothing to do with the society, he began, but if a trifling loan— You can stand me a cup of coffee, if you like, Bliss interrupted. With pleasure, the other agreed. I'll have one myself. They stood at a stall in the street and drank two cups of the steaming liquid. Then Bliss shook hands with his new friend. I'm glad to have met you, he said warmly. Thanks for the coffee. I'll look you up some day. Bliss walked away with a briskness that was half assumed. Mechanically he made his way again to the Labour Bureau, and as he stood there a youth thrust a fresh announcement onto the board. Bliss looked at it, and his heart gave a little jump. Seven omnibus drivers wanted that morning, applications to be made at the general offices. One man who had been standing behind him swung round and started off at a run. Bliss drew a long breath and followed him. There were five men before him when he reached the office, breathless. The foreman looked him over, glanced at his references, and hesitated. "'Ever driven a bus?' he asked tersely. "'Never,' Bliss admitted with a sinking heart. "'I've driven all sorts of cars, though. I can manage it all right.' The foreman wrote out a slip. "'That's for your test drive,' he explained. "'You'll find practice omnibus number four in the yard behind. Go to Golders Green and back, and bring me the report.' Bliss obeyed. He found the bus and an amiable-looking instructor. His fingers trembled as he climbed into the driver's seat. "'Don't be nervous, young chap,' the man by his side said. She's easier to handle than she seems. Keep her steady, that's all. Bliss glanced at him gratefully. The streets were still half empty, and he drove to Golders Green and back without mishap. The instructor signed his ticket, and Bliss took it back to the foreman. At nine o'clock his license was checked, and he took out an omnibus. His route was from Golders Green to Waterloo a distance which he accomplished six times during the day without incident. When he climbed down after his last journey, he felt almost exhilarated, although his eyes were heavy and his fingers numb. He made his way to the foreman. "'I forgot to ask what my wages were,' he said. The man laughed. "'All the same,' he replied. "'Thirty-six bob. You'll see the fines posted up.' You couldn't advance me a few shillings out of my first week's salary, could you? The foreman looked him up and down thoughtfully. Finally he thrust his hand into his pocket. Here's five shillings for you, young fellow, he said. I'll have to lend you that myself, against the company rules to advance anything. I shan't forget it, Bliss promised gratefully. 
Bliss found a small room at the top of a block of buildings off Oxford Street, and that night he slept so well that he had to run all the way to the yard to be on time to answer the roll next morning. Again he took out the bus and gazed down the London streets with new eyes. Towards the middle of the day rain fell, and the asphalt roadway became slippery. Once or twice he felt the great vehicle glide away from under his control. At the end of the day the strain had told upon him. The conductor looked at him curiously as they signed off. "'You look white, Ernie, my boy,' he remarked. "'Nothing to be scared about. You've driven her proper all day.' "'I've been in a regular funk about skidding,' Bliss confessed. "'They all are at first the conductor replied. "'I'm going to stand you one.' They had a drink together, and Bliss left for home, somehow a little cheered by the other's sympathy. The next day, as he brought his omnibus to a standstill at the corner of the Strand and Waterloo Bridge Road, he saw a familiar figure staring up at him from the pavement, open-mouthed and wondering. It was Mr. Crawley. Bliss kept an immovable countenance, and Mr. Crawley, recovering from his stupefaction, made a plunge for the bus. At the next stopping-place Bliss heard his pained voice on the pavement beside him. "'My dear Mr. Bliss!' he gasped. "'My dear young sir, I'm most shocked. For heaven's sake, be reasonable!' Bliss leaned towards him. "'Hello, Crawley!' he exclaimed. How are things? Mr. Crawley was bereft of words. He stretched across from the curbstone and laid his hand upon the other's shoulder. Yesterday, he announced in a hoarse whisper, I invested thirty-eight thousand pounds for you. I hope you remembered what I told you, Bliss observed, and kept clear of English rails. South America and the Argentine are the countries I fancy right now. "'I have remembered your instructions, sir,' Mr. Crawley assured him. "'I only mention the matter of investment at all, because the situation is so absolutely absurd. I insist—' "'Look here,' Bliss interrupted. Uh, "'That's the bell, and I'm off. If you say a word to me except when we're standing still, why, you'll have to leave my bus, that's all.' Now, jump on behind, if you want to, and I'll talk to you at the next stop. They drove on for about a quarter of an hour. Then, as Bliss drew in to the side of the street, at one of his regular halting places, Mr. Crawley appeared once more by his side. "'I'm giving up,' he said, "'an important appointment in the city, in order to reason with you. Uh, I insist upon an explanation.' Where your bus goes, I go. Is that poetry? Bliss murmured. It sounds familiar. Mr. Crawley reached over with his umbrella and tapped his client vigorously upon the shoulder. Young man, he exclaimed, you are a millionaire. Look at you. There is, pardon my referring to it, a hole in your trousers. Where? Bliss asked anxiously. "'Your hands are unmentionable,' Mr. Crawley continued, "'and your collar, your tie, for heaven's sake!' he burst out. 
What's it all mean? You used to be one of the most carefully turned out young men in London. Finicky, we used to think you sometimes. And there you sit, on a bit of sacking, in positive rags, with your hands all over grease, a smut on your nose, an omnibus driver, and looking the part. What the devil! In a matter of forty-nine days, Bliss interrupted, I shall resume my position as a sane member of society. Between ourselves, he went on quietly, I don't think I shall ever be quite the same Ernest Bliss whom you used to know. But apart from that, I promise you shall have nothing to complain of. Until then, the less I see of you, the better. Mr. Crawley bustled back to the rear. They were off again, and Bliss was sitting forward with his eyes glued upon the road and his hands firmly upon the wheel. It was ten minutes before a further opportunity for conversation arose. "'Is there nothing, whatever, I can do?' Mr. Crawley asked, as he came round once more to the front of the bus. "'There is,' Bliss replied. "'I'm glad you haven't gone. Memory as good as ever?' "'I think so,' Mr. Crawley rejoined. "'Go to 27 Overton Square, then. Inquire about a young lady, Miss Frances Clayton. See whether she is in employment or not. Let me have all the particulars tomorrow. You'll find me doing this same stretch.' Oh, "'I'll see to it with great pleasure,' Mr. Crawley promised, scribbling down the address. "'Any commission that has a gleam of common sense about it. Got anything to smoke with you? Bliss interrupted suddenly. Mr. Crawley produced a Morocco leather case. One side was filled with cigars, the other with cigarettes. Bliss's eyes lit up as he transferred the whole of its contents to his pockets and returned the case empty. Uh, you can get some more, you know, he said apologetically. You'd better hop it now. We've got a clear run before us to Golders Green, and you don't want to go there. Mr. Crawley hailed a passing taxicab. Bliss and the conductor started on the cigarettes. Rum old toff that was talking to you, the latter remarked. My eye, what smokes! Used to be my lawyer before I blewed it in, Bliss confided. Queer old bird, but he means well. End of chapter 29